There go all the juniors. There they go. i to tell you, it was kind of neat. We were singing that uh, song during communion or listening to it, and I knew our worship team was good. I didn't know we were that good. There was a, I don't know what it was, but it sounded like a, a bee over here humming along. I, I saw Larry looking around. We were looking around. I, <laughs> I'm like, man. I know the rocks will cry out with praise. You know, we got the bees all stirred up too around here. They're humming away and. Well, we're going to talk about the family, and whenever you talk about the family, uh, you know, I always like to talk, start off with, uh, you know, some <laughs> things from my own family, because sometimes preachers get up here and they start talking about, well, you're gotta, your family's got to do this, and your family that, and like, like they're, they have the perfect family. Well, I don't have the perfect family, none of us have, none of you have the perfect family, I can... You know, a lot of us are imposters when it comes to the family and, and, and the church. Uh, and a typical Sunday at the tallest house when the kids were little was, it would be, uh, you know, we're pushing nine o'clock and people still aren't quite ready to go and mom's running through the house, come on, we gotta go! And the kids are fighting and Kayla's already sitting in the car waiting on everybody and we're all running around and... You know, by the time we get to church, you know, people have been yelled at, threatened with a, a spanking, with a this or that, and, and now you're going to go into church and you're going to like it, and everybody's going to be happy. <laughs> and everybody walks in, you know, so wow, what a nice little family. And it's like, you don't understand. <laughs> I mean, General Eisenhower at D-Day didn't have the problems we had to deal with to get our army out the door and get them here so but uh, yeah I want to look at the the family I've spent a couple weeks looking at some of the fundamentals of the faith and I want to look at some things that might be a little more maybe more practical for us here as a church as a, as a people who love Jesus who who want to grow in our love for him and I really do believe that you know the family is one of the very best and the most important things in life it's from our families that we draw our love, our comfort. Uh, I know not all families are created equal. I know many families that may not have been your experience uh, to find love and comfort. But the family, as intended by God, was meant to be one of the most beautiful things, you know, in His creation. And so uh, I want to start off, you know, one, two, three, family. That's sort of our. Uh, Battle cry for our little middle school football team this year. They you know, every year it's teams get together and they okay everybody in here let's all you know one, one big cheer. And over the years I've heard all kinds of things. Kill them on three. Uh, pride hit desire. Uh, you know all kinds of stuff. Well this year their little battle cry is one two three family everybody all together. And I like that. Uh, that feeling of you know being a part of a family and and uh, so this is what we want to look at today. So if we move on, move on here in our uh, you know I want to start with the book of Genesis and it goes all the way back to the very first family. So if you have your Bibles, you might turn to Genesis chapter one and we're going to look at this first family that God had created. 
course, family, as I said, is one of the very best, the most important things in life. I, I used to have a friend who used to tease me when we were younger. He was always, man, how many kids you got? Uh, well, we got, got four kids. Man, you guys, you got four kids. You guys are crazy. You can't have four kids. And I heard all the jokes and the, okay, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever, you know. And so, uh, but now that we're, there's a few years behind us, now he's pretty envious, actually, because he's at the age where, you know, life is subtracting more people out of his life than is being added in there, and, and he looks at, you know, our family, it's just going to grow, and grow exponentially, and uh, I love the idea of large families, if and, uh, you know, my, my dream, I guess, someday is if I'm blessed enough, when it becomes my time to lie down and prepare for the kingdom, uh, my goal is to, you know, I'm, I want to be surrounded by a large family in my own bed, in my own house, football game on the TV, probably a hundred cats running around the house. Uh, if you've ever been to our house, you know, that's quite a problem these days. <laughs> I may even have a video game going. I, I don't know, you know, so, but the, the point is, families could be one of the very best and most important things in life. And here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created a man. And then he created a woman. And together they became the first family. And he didn't want them to just be alone. He said, be fruitful and multiply. I looked up, uh, what does to be fruitful really mean? Now, a fancy word for, you know, let's, let's, let's make babies. <laughs> let's go. The kids always get a kick out of that. When I, you know, when I talk about the baby boom generation at church, and uh, so, yeah, the guys, they all went off to war. Four years battling here, there, all over the place. They came home. The first thing they wanted to do Get married, make babies, get a job. And the kids are like, that's what you do. That's what I'd want to do. Come home. Let's, let's start a family. Off we go. Be fruitful. The word fruitful in Hebrew is the word Peru. Kind of like the country Peru, but, but different. It means to bring forth, to, to increase. To make more of. Be fruitful and multiply. That is one of the things, you know, with the family that God desires for us. Be fruitful. Multiply. Chapter 2, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You probably remember the story. Uh, God knocked Adam out and he took one of his ribs and made woman and there you go. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother 
and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's something magical about that, the idea of a a son or a daughter leaving the family, leaving mom and dad, and and joining themselves with somebody else, and becoming a, a new creation, this idea of to become one flesh, which I guess... Uh, taken to its extent, would be manifest in the creation of their own children. You look at, I mean, you and I are the product of our parents. Take so many genes from mom, so many from dad, mix them all together, there's, you got you. You literally are flesh of my flesh, you know, bone of my bones. We become one flesh. And that's manifest, I believe, in the creation of, of children. God wants us to enjoy the idea of the family, to be a family, to celebrate the family, to increase and multiply, and to be one flesh. You see this again in Deuteronomy, if we move ahead. Teach the kids about God. Great, you got all these wonderful kids. Some kids are nice kids. Some kids are a real challenge, real handful. Entire books have been written about the strong-willed child. Then you have the nice, compliant kids, and the you know, and we know how they all turn out, you know, a little bit differently. But if God says, you know, be together. Be fruitful, multiply, bring the kids. Teach them about God. Deuteronomy eleven nineteen. You shall teach them the words of God to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you rise up. Teach about God. Teach them about it. When our kids were little, we never really had devotions or Bible time. or But we did occasionally have a, a special, whenever we would, act, you could actually get us all to the table and, and eat uh, all at once. We had, we'd pull out this little book called Sticky Situations. They had all these kind of hilarious, goofy situations, you know, which would you do? You know, if this happened, what do you think you would do? And it was all from a biblical perspective, so we would be silly and talk about things and and it only lasted about five minutes before one of the kids would sabotage it, you know, blow it up, you know, make fun of it, and then we'd throw it away. And, you know, but, but the point was, we would spend a moment talking about the things of God, trying to train the kids in the ways of God. Now, my wife was much more active in, in the, the training of the kids. I always kind of, by example... Um, you know, praying, I, you know, like a lot of dads, we, we kind of step in, but a lot of the moms out there, you guys do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes training the kids. But training the kids was something that not only benefits them, but I think it's something that God desires of us. Now, we didn't do that very often, I know, and I'd always be envious of families who were like, yeah, every night we have dinner at the table. Like, wow, I wish we weren't that busy where we could do that. 
Let's move ahead. Psalm 127, verse 3. Train them up. Whoops. This is Proverbs. That's okay. We'll do Proverbs. Well, there we go. Yeah. Psalm 127.3. I love this, uh, the Avengers. I'm a big superhero Marvel guy. Even DC occasionally. But uh, I always love this character because every time I see him in action, I think about this verse from Psalm 127, which says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. We live in a society where big families are frowned upon. And there are a lot of reasons why we don't have big families anymore, but if you've ever sat with your family and you've taken up the entire church row... There's something beautiful about it. Look at the burners. I mean, you've got them lined up all down the road right there. That's fantastic. I'm sure Bart and Amy have got the, oh, you boy, how many more kids are you going to have? Uh, you need a new hobby, blah, blah, blah. You know, the whole thing. I've, I've heard them all. Children are a blessing. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Bart, you're a blessed man. Very blessed. Now, they probably drive you crazy like any other kids do at times, and you're like, ah, they're more like a curse than a blessing. But children are a blessing from God. Let's move on. Where's SpongeBob? Oh, let's go back to SpongeBob. I, I worked real hard to find... There he is. I love SpongeBob. He's the modern-day Bugs Bunny. The kids today don't know who Bugs Bunny is, which is a real tragedy to me, I think. So as a good father, I wanted to make sure my kids were adequately exposed to Bugs Bunny growing up. But uh, old SpongeBob, uh, Proverbs 22, 6. I mean, if you're going to have children, you're going to bring them into the world. You're going to tell them about God and that these kids are a blessing from God. Train them up in the way they should go. Even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. In the world of psychology, one of the areas that we talk about is childhood development. And one area that's really important is parenting. How do you parent your kids? And we all have our own ways of doing things. And, but there are you know, a few broad ideas you could, you could categorize parenting into. There's the authoritarian parent. It's like here on the left. Come on, Gary, you got to go, go, Gary, go. You're yelling at the kid, go, go, go. You know, and that poor Gary gets all worn out. And We want to train up our kids. I don't know if we want to beat them down like poor Gary there. Then you've got the what we call the authoritative parent. That, that's more like here on the right. You know, good job, kid. Setting up parameters, but not totally breaking their spirit. No, not trying to... Then you've got... Uh, I didn't even put them up here, the permissive types. That's the, you know, don't bother me, kid. Just, you know, if you get arrested, don't, don't, don't call me. I ain't going to bail you out. You know, you got that kind of, or you got the parent who gives the kids everything. The kid's my best friend. We're best buds. I give, you know, just give them everything. God wants us to 
train them up in the way that we should go. Now, there's no guarantee that they're going to grow up and be you know, what you envision them to be. They're human beings. They're going to be able to make their own choices. They're going to have to eventually carve their own path and go their own way in life. But I believe that in a perfect world, God, God wants us to join together, man and wife, and have children, and to train them and, and bring them up in the ways of God. Because that's important, let's look at 1 Timothy. Another, the Bible's loaded with, with things about the family. Man up, fellas, or ladies. You can woman up too, I guess. 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's not just having the kids. It's not just being the family and bringing the kids in and raising them up. But there's an expectation here of being a provider, of providing for them. God bless the parents who toil for their kids. I had a kid in class just, I mean, it's already the beginning of the year, and you already know who's going to do the work, who's not going to do the work. By the end of week three, I can tell you who all my A kids are going to be, who the kids that are going to be F's, who are going to struggle, who I'm really going to have to pull things out of them. This one kid, he didn't do his work, and I'm like, what's the deal? First assignment of the year, you didn't do your work. He's like, oh, I didn't want to. Well, at least you're honest. I appreciate, I admire your honesty. I said, you, uh, you had breakfast this morning? Yeah. What'd you eat? Oh, I had uh, cereal, and we had uh, this and that. And I'm like, that's amazing. Who put that food on the table? Mom. Where'd that food come? Mom and Dad. I said, yeah, Mom and Dad worked hard. Somebody went to work, went to, and worked on the job, and did something that they didn't want to do either. To put the food on the table for you. Isn't it a good thing that, that they went out and did what they didn't want to do? I mean, how many of you, I mean, if you love your job all the time, you're blessed. All right? I don't know if any of us that love our jobs all the time. You probably have gone to work before where you're like, I, frankly, I don't like this. I hate this job. But I got mouths to feed. I got things to put on the table. I got food and clothes to put on them. God sees that. He blesses that. He's proud. He loves you for that. Because providing for your own, you're showing them the faith that you have, the faith in God, and the responsibility to take care of those that you, that you love. God has an expectation as we bring kids into the world, as we begin our families, as our families grow, that we'll provide for those families, that we will work hard for those families. For all of those reasons, and I could have listed probably another 20 things that God intends for the family, but I think that should just give us a, an idea you know, that, uh, of what God really intended the family to be. And for those reasons, we shouldn't hesitate to affirm that there's an inescapable biblical basis for the supremacy of the family. 
I think that's the framework that God intends for the family. Let's go to the next slide. I want you to see some other family values that the Bible talks about. Um, let's see here. See if we can go. Ah, oh, other family values. Now, it's interesting. Uh, we always talk about the Word of God, and, and the Word of God says you're going to do this and that. Sometimes when we read the Bible, especially with Paul, he'll often qualify his writings with, now look, this is my opinion here. Not, not God's, but this is, this is my thoughts on the matter. So take it or leave it. It'd be like you and I having a conversation. Well, this is what I think about the family. You can take it or leave it. Well, Paul often talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you'll find his opinions on, on marriage. In Ephesians, again, teachings about marriage and the family. Colossians, family relations. First Peter, godly living within the family. The New Testament is chocked full of information about the family. The family is sort of the pinnacle, or the, the beginning point of, of God's people. It's through the family that the people of God come. The next generation comes through there. It's an incredible responsibility that we have to raise up our families in a godly manner. And the Bible doesn't skimp on the direction. Now, there's no doubt today that our families are under attack. Um, the world that our kids live in today, that your teenagers live in, uh, if we move ahead here, is, is a lot different than the world that you grew up in. Um, we have a new demographic called the I generation. We have the, uh, the baby boomers, then we had the uh, Generation X, that'd be my, Julie and I were Generation X. And you had Generation Y for a little while. Now you've, we've got the iGen. And this sort of started, of course, with the introduction of the, the, uh, the cell phone and the internet and the, the fundamental ways in which um, teenagers in our society have grown up. It's so different than what many of us you know, had when we grew up. And here you have the traditional family in the middle being uh, pulled apart because of the messages that you hear. I mean, you have uh, some people, uh, you know, the, the traditional idea of a, of a two-parent family, of a man and a wife and the children. I mean, anymore, there are people who want to, if you insist on the idea of the family, you're a bigot. You're closed-minded. How dare you judge me? And for the people of God, and we look in the Bible, this is the idea of the family that God has put forth. Most of the world would call you a bigot. If Satan wants to destroy and stymie the work of God in the world, what better way than to destroy the family? Liberals blame the economic situation, the, the economic problems of our, of our country and that's causing the destruction of the nuclear family. Mommy, daddy, and little baby. A lot of people today, liberals, will look at that and say, that's an old paradigm. Now, those of you who know me personally, I'm not a real conservative person. I'm probably more liberal than I am conservative on a lot of things. 
conservatives tend to blame the culture. We've gone down, you know, you, you know what happened in the 60s and the 70s, the culture's bad, middle class, uh, white America, you know, we get hung up and, and angry about things that are going on. Lax, live and let live attitudes towards sex and parenting has supposedly convinced young adults that there's no need to walk down the aisle before having kids. Liberals, again, blame the economy. Many families, especially inner city people, for example. I've never lived in the inner city. We've got a lot of people who like to comment on the lives of people who live in some of these uh, poor, run-down prisons that they, we call the inner city. They don't have the means or the opportunities to reach financial security. No jobs, no income, no insurance, no hope. What incentive is there then to maintain a traditional two-parent family? And if we live in a culture that is very lax about morals, we live in a society that teaches us you're not supposed to judge people. If you judge people, you're a bigot. If that's the case, we don't need a traditional family. It's a debate that never ends. I mean, it goes on and on and on. What's causing the destruction of the traditional family? Okay, I can do this. Let's go to the next one. Little uh, history lesson for you here. Can't help myself. I'm, I'm back in history mode. I've been teaching classes here. Here we have a uh, uh, chart about the. Uh, this is the birth rates here in the United States. Babies being born every year on the far side, 1909. So the the, the coming of the 20th century, uh, and then on the end would be the end of the 20th century, about 20 years ago. And you can see how the the, the birth rate overall from the beginning of the 20th century to the end, is, is much lower. Okay. You can see where the birth rate dropped between all oh, about, oh, at its low point here, about 1930, 32. What happened in 1932? Anybody remember? I don't think anybody was alive back then. I don't want to... You were? Woo, okay, I'm sorry. What... Uh... <laughs> You must have been a little girl then. One. 1932-ish, uh, the beginning of the Great Depression. Remember my grandparents, great-grandparents lived through the Great Depression. And growing up, I could never understand on my birthday, you know, here's everybody else giving me lots of money and a bunch of toys. and you know, They'd always give me socks or underwear, clothes. I'm like, hmm. But when you lived through that, those things would have been prized possessions. The point is, during those times, the birth rate dropped dramatically. People weren't having babies during the Great Depression. Look over here in the 1970s, into the 60s. I wish I had my pointer here. The summer of love and all that. You see a spike in the population. Then it kind of levels off. People are still having babies. Now in the late 60s into the 70s, we had some economic problems as well. Not as much as the Great Depression, but things were rough. You had a lot of 
blue-collar jobs being lost, union jobs were, were going, factories were closing. And you would think if times were tough, just like in the Great Depression, people would stop having babies. That's not the case. In fact, from the, 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 the mid-70s through the 80s, we call it the boomlet. Let's move to the next slide. Divorce rates. You can see uh, the, the, the massive spike in the rate of divorce in, uh, in the late 70s, into the 80s. Okay? Kind of interesting. What's going on here? You would think during the Great Depression there might have been a, a huge spike in divorces as well. There's not enough money to go around. There's no jobs. People stayed married or didn't get married. But you get here into the later part of the 20th century, you come up to the part where we are today, and you're starting to see some shifts in the attitudes, the, the, the culture that we find ourselves in. And the difference between the, the Great Depression, the 30s and the 70s, and today, I think, is culture. The country lost its hang-ups about premarital sex. It, be, it slowly became normal to raise a kid outside of marriage where accidental pregnancies had once regularly led to shotgun weddings, it became more common for couples to simply move in together. Were these relationships as stable as marriages? Nobody would be worried about it today, but unfortunately, living together tends to result in higher rates of divorce. I'm not judging anybody. I'm not trying to step on toes. I'm simply reporting the statistics, the facts of the case. The facts of the case are that people who live together before marriage, there's a 33% chance higher likelihood that the marriage will end in divorce. Put that on top of the already fact that over half of marriages already end in divorce. I've had lots of kids tell me, oh, we're going to live together, we're planning on that. You know, we'll kind of get to get know each other and work, and then we'll, well, then we'll get married, and it'll last longer. Statistics show that's not the case. If you want to live together, understand you've just upped your divorce chance by about 33%. I don't like those odds. I'm not a gambler, but I don't like those odds. Another big difference today, I think social norms have been destroyed by a plague of non-judgmentalism. Let's move ahead here. Don't judge me. I don't want to, I'm not going to disagree with you. I think we're, we're going to come to the same place, Mark, here. Mark's comments uh, for the communion thing were, were perfect. But today we live in the, the I generation. Your kids, Jesse, Kayla... Luke, the Burners, all these kids are growing up in a, in a society that is, don't judge me, non-judgmentalism is a huge part of their culture. And as such, the I generation, they're not judgmental. They don't judge people. They just don't. And people often, they get into the Bible and they'll, they look at the scriptures and sometimes they take it out of context. And, and, you know, but the problem is, and I really believe this, non-judgmentalism non is not, it's non-loving. 
When I tell somebody the truth in a spirit of love, it's because I love you that I say these things. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm loving you, and I want you to know the truth. And because I call a spade a spade, that doesn't mean I'm judging you, that I'm trying to destroy you. I'm trying to love you. Let's move on. Non-judgmental attitude, I believe, is not loving. Now, this is, this is my stuff. I didn't steal this out of a book or anything. You can take it or leave it. I might be totally wrong, and that's fine. But if someone I love is engaged in wrong conduct, then I ought to point out what they're doing to save them from a harmful end. When I was real little, I remember running in church one time, and my mom just yanked my arm. You don't run in the church. I was like, well, why not? I mean, this is fun. This is a fun place. Don't run in the church. It wasn't too much long after that. I was running, and I ran into somebody, and they dropped something, and it broke. And that was a whole big, my parents were embarrassed, and I crashed into them. And why did they tell me not to run in church? For that, I could have looked at him and said, Hey, Mom, don't judge me. I can run a church. Don't judge me. But no, my parents loved me. They said, Don't do this. If someone I love is engaged in wrong conduct, then I ought to, and I will, if I genuinely love them or her, I'm going to point out what they're doing is wrong because it's going to lead to a a harmful end. I love you. Don't do this. How dare you judge me? I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to take away your fun. I'm trying to help you. Don't judge me. Let's move ahead. Christian judgment is based on love. You know, the word judge is, is you know, it, it definitely has a negative connotation to it. When we love others, we want to help them avoid pitfalls and pain. The Bible often talks about exhorting the brothers, pointing out things. Not because they're, you're mad at them or because you think they're wrong, but because you, you, you care about them and you want them to look out for trouble. I had a Christian brother point out to me, John, you, you, you might want to watch some of the stuff you put on Facebook there, man. I mean, it's pretty funny stuff, but you're a pastor now. You might not think of yourself as it, but you are. And instead of getting all huffy and puffy and throwing a fit, and I was like, you know what, you're right. Thank you for pointing that out. i got to cool it. I could have said, don't judge me. I can't help it you don't have a sense of humor. It ain't my fault. Can't help it you don't like Obama, and you don't like... Anyways. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. So how do I love myself? Hopefully, you spend a lot of time reflecting on yourself and thinking about the things that you did, and hopefully you can correct those behaviors that aren't beneficial to you. That's a form of self-judgment. Let's move ahead. We've got to roll. 
1 Corinthians, I love that uh, chapter 13, it's a description of, of what love is. And I want to show you an example of love in action. Now, I don't have it up there, but if you turn to Matthew chapter 7, I thought of this while Mark was having his comments today. Mark, cha or, excuse me, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. Jesus is teaching here. He says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Well, most everybody's heard of that. The world's heard of that. Shakespeare worked it into some of his stuff, and everybody, yeah, don't judge. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standards of measure, it'll be measured to you. Now, yeah, it says, don't judge so that you will not be judged. Be but in the way that you judge, that's the issue, not the judgment. You need to call people out, but in a spirit of love. We're not perfect, but we, if you expect others to be perfect, when you yourself are not perfect, that's where the problem lies. When you demand others to be perfect, when you're not perfect, that's the attitude that Jesus is condemning, not the idea of, of judging. Well, you think you're perfect. That's the problem. John chapter 8, we, we kind of see this in action. What I think Christian love is, it's a famous story. Uh, it's about the adulterous woman. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Now, if you don't have your Bible, just kind of close your eyes and, and see the, the scene play out here. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down, and he started teaching them. Scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having her sit in the center of the court. And they said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up. You can almost hear him sighing. Ugh. Look, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Mike drop. Boom. <laughs> he sits down, he draws in the dirt again. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And when he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. Is that the end of the story? What does Jesus tell her? Don't do it again! Nobody's here condemning you, but don't do it again. Now, she, usually, she could have looked at him and said, don't judge me. <laughs> what are you, you telling me what to do? You can't tell me what to do. Look, I forgive you. Nobody's here. They're not perfect either. You're not perfect. But that doesn't mean you should go out and do it again. Don't do it. 
Now, the way Jesus goes about this, it's a, it's a model that you, lives out in 1 Corinthians. Love is patient. It's kind. It's not just Jesus was patient with this woman. He was kind with her. He didn't brag about, well, look, I'm perfect and you're not, but here, I'm going, I'm going to tell you this. He didn't act unbecomingly. He didn't call her names. He didn't seek his own gain out of this. He didn't provoke her. He didn't take into account the wrong that was suffered. He didn't rejoice in the unrighteousness, but rejoiced in the truth. And together, as those who love Christ bear all things, believe all things, endure all things, I really believe in this model. Jesus demonstrates how we are to act. We are to call things out to call people out, but in a spirit of love, a spirit of truth. We live in a culture in which the family is under attack. We live in a culture where our children are brought up to believe, don't judge people. You know, you're not supposed to judge people. You're a bigot if you judge people. Don't miss it. I'm not saying we should go around looking for trouble, that we should call people out and go around looking for people. There's a sinner right there. You're a sinner. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if the situation calls for it, because I love you, because you're engaged in something you should not be involved in, don't do it anymore. I'm not perfect. I don't want you to think I'm perfect. But I want to help you because I love you. I don't think that the idea of we should never ever judge people. I don't think that's biblical. But I do think we should tap the brakes on our judgments. We shouldn't go into them barreling full speed ahead. Press pause. Think about it. Look, I need to confront this, but I'm not perfect either. I make a lot of mistakes too. But I love you, brother. I really think you need to think about this. And I think that our children being brought up in an age when they're not really allowed to do that by the culture, it damages them. It hurts them. Well, there's more to go, but it's getting late. The hour is late. But I want you to think about your family this week. If we can move ahead here, think about your own families. And I know, you know, when you talk, when preachers get up and they talk about the family, a lot of times people can walk out the doors thinking, man, my family ain't nothing like that. Let me tell you, my family ain't nothing like that. In my extended family, I, my cousin, I, I mentioned her, I mean, she was married six times, seven times, had. Six children by different husbands. Imagine trying to remember that birthday list. You know, and just all kinds of, you know, divorce, poverty, apathy, death. My family's seen it. Your family's seen it. But I want you to think about your family, where it is. None of our families are perfect. None of us are perfect. But I really believe that it's God intended. For the family to be one of the most beautiful things in his creation. It's in the family that we circle the wagons when things get rough. It should be there in the family that we find our energy and recharge our batteries for the week ahead. 
It's there that we, we think and we give thanks to God. And if your family's struggling, give thanks for your church. That song that we sang before, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. You're a part of this family, and we love you. We respect you. We don't judge you as the world does. We love you. We judge ourselves. We want to support you. We want to love you. So over the next few weeks, I want to look at the family. I want to look at the idea of the family. What is it God really wants for us? I'm not a perfect dad. I'm not the perfect parent. This is what you do. You want your good kids. You gotta, I'm not going to do that. But I do want to point out some things about the family that I think are so very, very important. I also would ask this week, if you have friends, specifically if they're single mothers, single moms, let's go to the the next slide, invite them next week, because single moms are superheroes. You think about the, uh, the challenges that single mothers have in raising children, in providing for the family, a pulling double duty. Single moms are superheroes. North Hills Church of God exists to lead people into a growing relationship with Christ. We want to support single mothers. So if you know a single mom, bring them. Bring them next week. Let's talk about single mothers. And we'll talk about a young lady from the Bible who became pregnant by one of the most important people in the Bible, and then he threw her out of the house. And she went off by herself and was abused and lost. And God found her there all by herself trying to raise this one child. And he blessed her and he loved her and he cared for her. That's the model that we want to have as as the body of Christ. That's the model that we want to look at. That's the family that God and Envision. Well, there's a lot of things we could talk about. It's like going to the barber shop. You sit around, you talk three hours. Of course, at my age, all the men, they all doctor up in there and talk about, well, what medication you on this way? Yeah, well, I got this, I got that. We sit around and talk about the family. We could go on and on and on. But I want you to know that as a church, we love your family. We love you. We love what you're trying to do with your family. We want to support you, and we want to love you as the church of God.